Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, many are questioning whether the Prime Minister had a case to call an election. Things are heating up in Afghanistan as the August 31st deadline approaches. We need more nurses, doctors, anyone in the healthcare industry. And another tribute to Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Sorry I missed yesterday. I was busy trying to find a life during a global pandemic. Mom did a great job, but she's better with her hugs. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. You better hope, you better hope mom's not listening here. She's working. Uh, you know, uh, and, and hopes to get a hug out of that. I'm not sure. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Um, some fascinating headlines and, and interesting observations. Uh, in this election campaign as we hit day 11. But a fascinating headline in the Toronto Star today, uh, Aaron O'Toole is so bad, he makes Doug Ford look good, JT Justin Trudeau charges. To me, that sounds like one of those jokes, you know, your mother's so ugly. Uh, like I, I was just stunned. And CBC, over a week into the campaign, Trudeau has yet to make a case for himself. Uh, fascinating uh uh, headlines coming out in the last 24 hours. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Alyssa PR, uh, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes. Hi, Scott. What are your thoughts on these headlines? Whoa! <laughs> like, like, uh, let's start with the Toronto. Let's start with the Toronto Stars headline today. Uh, Aaron O'Toole is so bad he makes Doug Ford look good. I'm waiting for a rim shot. Ding da. Uh, Justin Trudeau charges. I mean, is this desperation? Like, how do you explain a a uh, a media which is generally left leaning? Is this supporting the prime minister? Well, you know, I'm really, really shocked. And here's the thing: who called the election? Uh, Justin the Trudeau. And it's almost like he 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 forgot that he called an election and that he's in an election and that he's got to be electioneering. So, you know, everybody, it's not like anybody was caught flat-footed when he called the election. It was the worst-kept secret in Ottawa. And now that he's in it, you know, he needs to take charge because I think a lot of people and liberals and maybe even other parties just thought that Trudeau was going to cakewalk this. And so far, he just sort of hasn't shown that leadership or even that swagger or... You know, it, it, it seems like I'm really wondering where sort of like the big red machine is that usually rolls at this time and helps create and sell that narrative. So the one thing I can only think behind that headline, Scott, is that, as you know, this election is won and lost in a handful of ridings around this country. And a number of those ridings are in Ontario. So when you are giving an Ontario-centric uh, narrative, hoping that the media picks it up in a major Toronto paper, which goes across the province, 
you know what? Maybe that's a strategy because they know that Doug Ford is polling really, really low right now. So it's honestly the only reason I could think of by even coming up and uttering that quote. Uh, I think what it shows is the liberals and Justin Trudeau have got nothing. Uh, they've called this election. It started off with mandatory vaccines and abortion, which, my goodness, can we please put the abortion issue on the back burner or throw it out the closet? It's It's been done. It's been done since the 70s. Now he's focusing on the other parties. He's fear-mongering. If those guys get in, it's going to be the end of the world. They're going to reverse everything that we do. Uh, it, it seems that he's really, really reacting and and focusing on the other uh, on the opposition, both of which are giving him a run for his money, as opposed to why the hell we even called this election in the first place? What's the reasoning? Well, here's the thing. You know, at the very beginning, the conservatives were going on and on about why are we having an election in a pandemic? Why are we doing it? Th- why are we doing this? It's not safe. And the NDP also jumped on that narrative. And I thought, okay, is this the best we can do? We're going to be having, you know, some form of the pandemic for years and years to come, like the flu. So I don't think that that narrative is going to stick. But here it is. I was just watching around the dial this morning, and it says, okay, you know, not everybody, you know, you're out there. You're, they were talking to Jagmeet Singh. Is everybody on your campaign? Are they vaccinated? Are you being tested? And he says, yeah, you know what? We're doing whatever we need to do within public health guidelines. But remember, we didn't call this election in a pandemic. Trudeau did. Yeah. So here is like your worst nightmare as a strategist, that this narrative is actually still playing. And why is it still playing? It's because the liberals are not controlling it. So if this is your election, then you have to be more proactive with your narrative. Tell Canadians why they need to vote you in for another four, you know, four, whatever, four or five years. And... Don't rely on reacting on what the other candidates are saying. Take the lead. I think this is still playing out because there's been nothing else to wipe it off the front pages, which includes a reason for him throwing this election and and why the heck we're even here in the first place. Again, he seems to be reacting more than he's stepping forward and taking the lead. Well, boy, oh boy, Scott, what's going to happen when the debates come? You know, Whatever yeah. you think of Aaron O'Toole, Aaron O'Toole is a skilled debater. He knows how to debate. And Jagmeet Singh is also very good. And yeah. as his enemy, Paul. Uh, you know, so you have to have a much better narrative when you enter those debates rather than this other guy is just no good for you. So, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the Trudeau war room is thinking ahead to this and going, well, this narrative isn't landing, this narrative isn't landing. But I think what they're really doing, Scott, is that they are going, truly, truly going riding by riding and polling and continually polling those ridings that they know they need to get a majority. And honestly, I don't think they expect all Canadians to vote for them, but they are in, you know, maybe 10 to 15 ridings or whatever they need to get a majority. Yeah, it is very much targeted campaigning now. You can certainly uh, see this or see that rather. 
Um, but you know, I, I found yesterday interesting that all four parties brought out a how or started talking housing. I mean, the Greens did it. Uh, I believe the uh, NDP and and obviously the Conservatives uh, did it. I think at the beginning, and then uh, and obviously uh, Justin Trudeau has has put his out. Who would have ever thought that housing was going to be an issue? All we were talking about was social issues, uh, whether it's uh, you know who's being treated well, who isn't being treated well, uh, climate change. Where's climate change in this discussion? Instead, you know, the first week is mandatory vaccine and and. Uh, and abortion and such. So, and as the CBC headline says uh, yesterday, over a week into the campaign, Trudeau has yet to make a case for himself. What are they saying? Well, it, I, you know, it's fairly self-explanatory, but I mean, you know, where is the case? Give us the case unless you're trying not to blow your brains in about, you know, uh, four weeks so that you're trying to stretch out your timing as long as you can so that you're, you know, you hit with your narrative when it really counts, when Canadians actually go to the polls sort of that week of September 20th. I don't know. I mean, uh, honestly, every campaign sort of defies reasoning until you start until you start to parse it apart. But every campaign also has its resonance. Like I remember when Bill Clinton came into power, it was very, very simple. It was, it's about the economy, stupid. And, and, and that's essentially how they won that. So if, if, if you want Canadians to vote for you, what is it about you that you want, you know, you need another, you need a majority? Because there's not much really that Trudeau and the Liberals did not get passed in the minority government, with the exception of give us full power so that we can, you know, have full reign and, and pass whatever we need to pass, which of course, you know, never happened. So really, what is the most compelling reason of what you're going to give Canadians. And we've talked about this, Scott, and it's about hope. It's about the future. This is what it's going to look like. So if this is what it's going to look like, if the future is what you want to sell Canadians, then therefore, what is that all about? What is it this week? What is it the next day? What is it the next day? And have those narratives that keep support your overall objective. Honestly, you know, his, his, his war room team, his campaign team is very seasoned. The people there are very smart. So I'm sure there is some sort of rhyme or reason as to why their liberals are running the campaign such as it is. But really, until, you know, they really start to get that ball rolling, you and I are still going to be saying, so why are we supposed to be voting for the liberals? Or why should Canadians be voting for the liberals? Uh, on the timing issue, I mean, uh, I had one expert say that's old, sc- uh, old school politics in the sense that there's so many advanced polls, there's mail-in stuff now. I was talking to my mother last night at her long-term care home. She's talking about them setting up stuff in the home for them to, to vote. So the campaign, people are voting. I mean, they're already making their minds up. So I'm not sure that strategy works, but it seems that Justin Trudeau is looking for a fight. He's desperately looking for a, a, a loose thread on either the NDP or the conservatives and he if they do this if you elect them this is all going to happen and he's looking for a a wedge issue to label uh the other parties with whether it's like abortion uh they're going to go back to the 1970s with the conservatives or whether it's the ndp and you know the whole thing's going to be socialism i mean he's really really looking for a fight to take the attention away from he's got nothing but maybe those wedge issues are really demographic issues scott 
So when you talk about it's going to go back to the 1970s, well, who who are you talking to? Yeah. You're talking to voters of an older demographic. If you're talking about abortion, you're talking to voters in a certain demographic. So while we think this is all very loosey-goosey, maybe this is just very strategic. And you're talking to the voters that you need. Like I yeah. said, they don't need all the voters across Canada to vote for them. But what they need is strategically in very specific writings. So, therefore, if all of these so-called loosey-goosey narratives are really just targeting the people that he needs, well, then on September 21st, whatever happens, you and I are going to have quite a bit to say about that. Uh, interesting email from Dave. Perhaps Trudeau fatigue is finally setting in. People are getting wise to the empty Trudeau, possibly. Oh, that's a good that's a good comment from Dave. And I thank him for sending that in because, you know, sometimes people just want change. Yeah. So I guess, you know, by calling this election early rather than later, you definitely think the fatigue factor is there. But maybe right now it is not. So sometimes, you know, voters just want change. And that's all they want. And we've seen that time and time again with, you know, very big majorities and Canadian governments throughout, you know, time. So that could be interesting if there is voter fatigue around Trudeau. I would have to say that that might be the case for somebody, but some people, but I would also have to say that I don't think he's far enough along in his mandate for that actually to perhaps play a, a have a big enough impact. But I think it's a, a, a really, really valid point. Uh, what about the Churchill example? Uh, Justin Trudeau equals uh, pandemic. People are totally fatigued with the pandemic. Therefore, don't want to hear anything more about you know what was done. They just want to move on. What's the next stage? What's happening after this? Well, you know, that's absolutely true. So that's why, I mean, you know, the British people really equated Churchill with war and they wouldn't hear any more about war. They just wanted yeah. the new guy. So, therefore, you know, Churchill did not win. And I'm sure that that is absolutely on the minds of um, the campaign team. So when you look about the narratives and you hear about housing and, you know, you hear about health care and, you know, hire 7,500 more family physicians. I don't know where you're going to get all those family physicians, but that's besides the point. So what they're trying to do is not really have the pandemic stick with them as a major narrative throughout the election. Alyssa Freeman has been with us. Alyssa PR talking all things election. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. We said it was our objective to help to evacuate several thousand Afghan nationals who supported the Canadian mission along with their families. We hope to add to the numbers that we have already evacuated by keeping boots on the ground and flights in the air for as long as possible. That is Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino talking about Canada's efforts in Afghanistan and uh, how we keep this airport open as long as we can and Kabul and and get people out as quickly as we can. It still seems that uh, August 31st is the hard deadline. Um, many are saying it's the U.S., but I have a feeling the Taliban uh, has a lot to say about this deadline a- as well. Uh, I'm not sure how much choice there is here. Let's bring in Oral Braun, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Oral, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm fine, thank you. 
Uh, give us a bit of an update here, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the actual deadline, which we know is August 31st. Uh, President Biden, U.S. President Biden said uh, that's it for them. They're out. Uh, the Taliban seem pretty firm on that uh, date uh, as well. Is there any choice here? Is there any movement on that date? There does not seem to be any movement. The Americans seem very intent to obey the Taliban. It is the Taliban who are setting the schedule right now. They made it very clear that they will not grant an extension. So imagine that the greatest power uh, on the planet basically has to get permission from uh, an organization that has been deemed to be a terrorist group, the Taliban, who said, uh, you must leave. We're not giving you an extension. If uh, Biden decided to change uh, his direction and not take uh, it from the Taliban and decided to extend that uh, that timeline on his own, what would be the repercussions? What would be the fallout? And what would America need in order to make that possible? They may need to insert uh, a larger number of troops, uh, not many more, but uh, uh, somewhat larger. They may need to tell the Taliban that there could be repercussions that are beyond economic and political, but military as well. United States has military capacity in the area. They could move aircraft carriers, bring a lot of air power uh, against them, and United States could put an enormous amount of pressure on Pakistan, which is the most influential outside player with the Taliban. But I think, if I may say, something has happened that's much larger that we need to understand, and it's really crucial because we had the G7 meeting and this G7 meeting surely must have been incredibly disappointing for the allies. You will recall that many allies of the United States were very concerned about the Trump administration. Mr. Trump was viewed as someone who engaged in unilateralism and isolationism. So they welcomed when the Biden administration came to power because Mr. Biden made two crucial promises. And one was that the United States is back, meaning that United States would be engaged in the international system. And two, that United States would consult with allies. And the allies, in turn, had congruent expectations. One, that allies could rely on United States. And two, that allies would have a say. The promises proved to be false, and the expectations have proven to be naive. So basically, that G7 meeting the other day hinged on really what President Biden thought. It was America first. Mr. Trump could not have said it differently. And uh, what the United States, through Mr. Biden, was telling the allies, uh, all those expectations you had, you must be very naive, because ultimately, I will decide, Mr. Biden, what is good for the United States, or at least what is good for me electorally. Uh, considering that the others pulled out long ago, uh, can they be surprised? Well, yes, they can be surprised. They didn't all pull out. Uh, uh, some were still active in it. And uh, when we say allies pulled out, like Canada, that we left militarily in 2014, but we spent uh, over a billion dollars in all sorts of aid programs, and we were still engaged in building civil society and helping the education uh, system, uh, trying to get more uh, girls into schools. And so um, it is not that Afghanistan was abandoned, 
by the other countries. They had diminished their military commitment, and uh, they were depending, in a sense, on, at the very least, an orderly exit. And you know that before the G7 meeting, many of the allies, whether it was Britain or France or Canada, wanted the United States to extend their stay. United States made a unilateral decision. No. Uh, the Prime Minister has said Canadian military personnel will stay. Uh, th- then there's sort of conflicting information. I, I, just saw, I just saw another report that says uh, they will stay but will be out before the United States or by the United States uh, roughly the same time. Is, is everyone out with, with the United States? Like as soon as the U.S. pulls out, then, then the, the rest follow suit? The French were saying at one point that they may stay longer, but the latest I have is that France is likely to pull out tomorrow. I do not quite understand what exactly we were thinking in suggesting that we could stay even after the Americans uh, had uh, removed their military presence. How exactly would we protect our people? I do not see the logistical means of doing that, and I do not uh, understand why this would be said or, or, or promised. Uh, maybe there is some secret means that we have that the public is not aware of, but um, the British and the French, they are all pulling out, and they made it very clear that once United States had made the decision that they will not stay beyond the... the uh, end of this month. And, you know, anything can happen. I mean, it's possible that they'll work out some kind of deal with the Taliban or stay a few more days, but it mm-hmm. does not look like that today. Uh, and it's hard to envision how any other of the Western countries can stay, have any kind of credible or viable uh, presence in Afghanistan if uh, the Americans are gone. Uh, immigration uh, said uh, 535 lifted out yesterday by Canada. That is uh, the largest that they've done to date. Boy, you see those images at the airport. That seems like a drop in the bucket. Who is Canada getting out? Uh, who will not get out? The ones we are getting out, in a sense, are, by Afghan standards, elites. Uh, that is, people who were educated enough that... Uh, they could act as translators uh, who uh, uh, were uh, able to work with Western organizations, whether it was military or civilian, and uh, therefore they were in a relatively privileged position. But this is, as you suggested, a very tiny minority. We are looking at hundreds of thousands, ultimately probably millions of Afghans, who will become refugees. This is a catastrophe on an extraordinarily large scale. There are already something like 350,000 Afghan refugees in Turkey, and Turkey now wants to close its its borders. Uh, and uh, uh, the Europeans show no indication that they're going to take vast numbers the way they took uh, in uh, over a million Syrians. But uh, we may have a refugee problem on the scale of Syria. Afghanistan has a population of roughly 40 million, and especially certain minorities, the Hazaras, the Tajiks, will be under tremendous danger 
under the Taliban. And we can see the Taliban already taking very harsh steps. There are two steps that are really noteworthy. One, despite the kind of charm offensive that they engage in because they've become more media savvy, uh, where they said, well, women will be able to work as long as they do so under uh, Sharia law, they have said, no, women, you stay home until we sort things out. So at the moment, at the moment, the women of Afghanistan largely are confined to their homes. Yeah. It is a form of imprisonment. And that can only be altered at the will or the whim of the government. The second element, which is also very chilling because it is a sign of how totalitarian systems operate. The Taliban said, we do not want Afghans to leave, especially doctors, engineers, and so yeah. on. And of course, this is what totalitarian systems do because they want to contain the population, they want to isolate the population. And leaving one's country is a fundamental right. Uh, early on in this, many said, didn't we see this coming? Wasn't the writing on the wall? Many were surprised at which the speed the Taliban uh, retook the country and such. Uh, uh, are we looking forward here? Because right now, obviously, the issue is Kabul airport and what is going on there and how we're getting all of these elites, as you say, out of the country, their brightest and their best out of the country. Has anybody looked ahead to see what is coming after all of these people leave and, and, and what becomes of Afghanistan afterwards? Uh, just like we didn't have the foresight to see this coming, do we have the foresight to see what happens once everyone uh, bails out of Afghanistan and, and, and lets the cesspool fire up? Well, let me just first of all say one, that when I said elites, these people ought to be helped out. These yeah. people are oh. in danger, so it's not... They are Absolutely. In any way. Yeah. No, uh, my point was that we're, you know, it's still the best and the brightest that are leaving the country, which and, doesn't and, and leave so, a lot left. So uh, it, it is the case that, you know, they just are a certain segment of the Afghan population, but uh, it, it is uh, right that we should do everything possible to get them out. They helped uh, us, they helped other Western countries, they helped their own people. They are deserving individuals and deserving families. But you mentioned the writing on the wall. Well, you could have the writing on the wall, but you have to read it. And the writing has been on the wall for a long time, but uh, people were not, policymakers were not reading it. And there's writing on the wall right now that we either are not reading or we don't want to read because it's too grim. And the writing on the wall tells us that uh, this uh, country, Afghanistan, will be in astonishing turmoil, that it is uh, a horrific tragedy, that it's not likely to be contained that there will be all these great power games, China and Russia want to take advantage of this, of this, that Pakistan is likely to continue their duplicitous game, which has allowed the Taliban to survive, thrive, and ultimately uh, win. And so um, we uh, in the West, especially the Biden administration, does not seem to want to read what is on the wall because they would need to act. So the hope it seems that the uh, Biden administration has is that once they remove the troops and the news media uh, will leave, then the interest in what happens in Afghanistan will diminish. And yes, it may be a localized tragedy, but not one that will concern Americans or affect the midterm elections. 
it is astonishingly cynical, so much for compassion on the part of the Biden administration. And the rest of the West uh, uh, has shown itself to be relatively impotent to act on its own because it's not going to be a Western coalition that will go in and help the Afghan people without the United States. Do you think that uh, in five years we'll be back to clean up the next mess? I, I hope that we don't have to do that, but there are disturbing signs that there are various terrorist organizations. I mean, the Taliban are a terrorist organization, but it's almost difficult to envision that there could be someone more extreme. But um, ISIS-K, also known as ISKP, um, Islamic State Khorasan Province, they view the Taliban as too moderate. And one of the reasons why no civilian Western aircraft are landing at the Kabul airport is because there's a fear that ISIS-K or ISKP will use shoulder-fired missiles to shoot down civilian aircraft, and they do not have countermeasures. So we see these military aircraft taking off, shooting off flares, part of these electronic countermeasures, because they are fearful that these groups, which are even more extreme, if we can imagine that, than the Taliban, uh, are, are ready to take action. And there are elements of al-Qaeda. Mr. Biden had to admit that, that there are still elements of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and we don't know what other terrorist groups will uh, uh, emerge. And if there would be some major attacks against Western targets, another 9-11 that would emanate from Afghanistan, then one cannot exclude that possibility. I mean, I certainly hope that doesn't come about, but one cannot exclude the possibility that uh, Western countries, democracies might have to intervene again. Let's not forget that uh, Mr. Biden's former boss, President Obama, who was hardly an interventionist and certainly no right-winger, said that Afghanistan had been a war of necessity, not a war of choice. He said uh, Iraq was a war of choice, but Afghanistan was a war of necessity. We'd like to avoid a war of necessity because that means basically we have no choice. Uh, We'll be reactive. And this is one of the problems that uh, we have had. Hmm. This is where the Biden administration is so utterly disappointing that there was a hope that this would be an administration coming in that is proactive rather than reactive. And the worst kind of outcome would be is that it would be a policy that is reactive and we wait until there is a vast crisis or a horrific tragedy before we act because the preference is to try to ignore, contain uh, what's happening in Afghanistan and leave the Afghan people to their own tragedy as if it doesn't affect us. But we live in a globalized system, and you really can't isolate any corner of the world uh, forever. I'm going to ask a question, Arl, that probably can't be answered, but we certainly know how we got here. 
uh, post 9-11, occupation for 20 years, trying to train a military, uh, giving women all kinds of rights they've never seen uh, or haven't seen in a while, including education and such. Uh, definitely advancing the country in those 20 years. But then, you know, boom, as soon as uh, the the opportunity is right, uh, the Taliban literally overtake uh, the nation in, 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 in surprising many in the speed in which they did so. So would the solution be, if, in hindsight, would the solution have been to just stay there indefinitely and just monitor the place? Or was the correct solution just to, there's nothing more we can do here after 20 years? Uh, or is occup- like a, an indefinite occupation, would that have been the correct answer, the, the way to go? There is no easy answer, as you said, and, and it's a very valid debate with good people, smart people on both sides uh, of the argument of leaving and of, of staying. I would suggest the following, that um, contrary to belief that you cannot uh, build democracy uh, in certain places of the world, the reality is that democracy has been built in very unlikely places in, in the world, uh, never mind uh, former Nazi Germany, former fascist mm. Italy, former militaristic Japan, which have all become uh, phenomenally successful, thriving democracies, and all of which continue to have allied troops stationed more than 70 years. Let's not forget that there's still American... Uh, troops in Japan, American forces mm-hmm. in Germany, uh, American forces in uh, Italy. But if you look at South Korea, which was very corrupt in the, in the 50s and 60s, American planners were absolutely despondent. Is it worth it? North Korea was a more developed, advanced country even in the early 1960s in South Korea. But then South Korea took off, and it has become a very successful democracy and a very successful economy, but uh, forces have been in Korea since 19, Western forces, American forces in particular, since 1950. So it takes a lot of patience, and the Americans only had about 2,500 troops. So the significance was psychological. The collapse of uh, the military in Afghanistan was due not only to corruption, and of course that was rampant and corrosive and contributed to it, but it was also a loss of confidence. It was psychological. It was uh, what game theorists call a a commitment problem. And when the Americans decided to remove that relatively small number of forces, which kind of kept that balance, then there was the psychological collapse. And uh, the West is generally impatient. And success has come where the West has been patient. And those examples are uh, the former Axis powers, places like uh, South Korea, places like Taiwan, uh, which, uh, against all kind of odds, have succeeded in becoming democracies with people from various cultures. And that would tend to show us that there's no anti-democratic DNA anywhere in the world. People would prefer to live in dignity And millions of Afghans, let's not forget, risk their lives to go out and vote for women's rights and so on under death threats from Taliban over the years. So it's not as if uh, the people of Afghanistan preferred to live under tyranny. 
Oral Braun with us, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Oral, again, thanks so much for the time. Fascinating discussion. Be well. You too. Bye. Here is today's daily commentary. Instead of apologizing for using manipulated media to misinform Canadian voters on social media giant Twitter involving Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told reporters to watch the full video, hoping that voters will be distracted from their dishonesty and move on. It is one thing to address an opponent's character and policy. It's another, as Twitter put it, to use, quote, manipulated media to change a competitor's answer to a question or message. That's what Donald Trump did and was eventually banned from Twitter for spreading misinformation. Some say they all do it. Well, no, they don't. And if they did, Twitter would out them too. And I can't think of any other political party that has been accused of using manipulated media by a social media influencer such as Twitter. But it certainly is another great distractive lie, much like the original with their doctored video of conservative leader Aaron O'Toole that started this whole conversation. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here we are, week number 75 of the Scott Thompson Home Show, 660 new cases. Uh, but of course, uh, the, the real determining factor is just keeping hospitals and ICUs uh, stabilized and uh, patients out of there so uh, they can do what they normally do on a daily basis, which is uh, help sick people in, in you know, cancer and surgeries and all that sort of thing uh, other than a global pandemic. So uh, obviously, as we try to get more and more and more and more vaccinated, uh, it is essential that we keep that momentum uh, moving forward. Lots of discussion, especially as we are in a, an election year, day 11 of the campaign for the federal election uh, underway. All kinds of chatter about health care. Gee, what a surprise. You know, when you go through a global pandemic, it's amazing how um, the public's uh, focus changes. And we've talked a lot about the healthcare industry, uh, the people that are on the front lines, uh, everything from uh, uh, PSWs to doctors, specialists, technicians, nurses, uh, what have you. And we all know the fatigue that we are feeling. You can just imagine what it must be like to be on the front line of this battle and uh, be doing that for the last uh, year and a half, however long it's been now. Uh, the president of the Ontario Nurses Association uh, is with us talking about all of this and and uh, how the Nurses Association moves forward, what it means for the industry, and how do you recruit new nurses to jump on board? Is this an opportunity? Let's bring in Vicki McKenna, registered nurse and president of the Ontario Nurses Association, and is with us now. Vicki, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, and you too. I hope you are as well. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, obviously, we're in the midst of a federal election campaign. Obviously, health care is a provincial jurisdiction. But as, as we've seen through this pandemic, there is certainly a lot more uh, overlap uh, these days. Is, is there any attention you're trying to get from the federal campaigns uh, for nursing? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we want to make sure that health care is a top priority for whatever government uh, comes into office at the end of all of this. But I will say this, is that public health care, and I think you're absolutely right when you talked about it brings health care into focus, but certainly a pandemic has. And I think the public, their eyes are on health care too, which I think is really important to move through policies that will 
oh, not only stabilize, um, but improve our healthcare system. And, you know, that, that's really part of the key. What we've seen is some of quite honestly horrific failures in our healthcare system, not, you know, right across this country, particularly in long-term care, of course, but also in our more acute care. In Ontario, for instance, we have the lowest number of hospital beds per population against any other province, and we have the lowest number of nurses working in uh, our system against any other province. And this has been the way for the last three years, I would say. Um, We want to see the federal government truly make investments in healthcare beyond what they're doing now in the transfer payments. Uh, because we're, we're running into our, we've got ourselves in a, in a really difficult situation in this province. And we, on top of that, we have a shortage of nurses. And this shortage, when I talk about that, I know, uh, pre-COVID, we did, you know, been watching the numbers and surveying our members, uh, about what's happening out there. We've been short of nurses with, quite literally thousands of vacancies in our hospital sector as well as in long-term care. And boy, oh boy, did we ever see that become more and more apparent uh, as we've moved through the pandemic, particularly in long-term care, but not exclusively. You know, it's... it's Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, and now we have a situation where healthcare workers, just like you described, everyone, you know, members of the public, all of us are so fatigued and tired with COVID. But when you're working in at the front lines each and every day, uh, working with, you know, people who are so desperately ill and they're trying to support their families, the emotional and physical exhaustion is, is so apparent in the nurses and healthcare professionals I speak to every day. And I'm worried. I'm worried about retaining the nurses that we have and recruiting. Yes, absolutely. But retaining the nursing workforce that we have. And those numbers in the surveying that's being done in research aren't looking good for us. You know, it's interesting as I'm listening to you uh, mention uh, all of the issues, Vicki, uh, you know, going back to transfer payments from uh, from the feds to the provinces and such. These are all issues we've been talking about for a long time. And the only issue that seems to stand out for the healthcare industry, and, and again, let's be honest, uh, you know, uh, the more fashionable issues seem to get the attention of the politicians, but, but certainly a global pandemic has has changed all of that. And I mean, you could turn around and take, say, for example, the issue of wait times, you know, a few years ago before there was even a pandemic. So these issues are not new in any way, are they? Correct. No, they're not new. They are absolutely, you're absolutely right. It's not new. Before the pandemic, many people will remember hearing about overcapacity in our hospitals, hallway healthcare happening, because we didn't have enough deaths, we, and we don't, and we don't have enough staff, and, you know, we didn't then, we certainly don't now. And so, you know, it's, these are not new issues, but when you see, uh, when we've lived through and living through a pandemic as we are now, it is front and center, and it's on everyone's mind. And, you know, this is something that is not, cannot be shelved. It can't be, you know, put on the back burner. There is urgent action needed. 
You know, you, you talk about uh, changing careers, and we have uh, talked about this on the show several times, and again, usually industries not related to healthcare, about how the, some are predicting a mass exodus in, in, in lots of different industries, lots of different companies, as people, you know, rethink what their priorities are and such. But then you take a look at something like uh, healthcare, uh, my goodness, um, you know, you, you can't be losing uh, members of a healthcare team because they're fried or burnt out or they just can't do the work anymore. Because, as you mentioned, uh, as far as a recruitment, uh, uh, you know, and using all of this uh, attention to bring in recu- recruitment, if the, if the younger people who are coming in are seeing what's happening to the older members, they're going to be less reluctant to, to, to even be involved in this industry. What do you have to do? And again, many have looked at this as, as, a, as an opportunity. There is opportunity here if you want to become a nurse. So uh, how concerned are you here that what you have to offer necessarily isn't appealing to those younger people because they see this stress, they see this fatigue. Well, you know, this is uh, also really um, interesting to talk about because what we are hearing from newly graduated nurses is, and who are just entering or been in the system working just for a few years, they're saying that they love the work. They, you know, they, they really like the work. However, they're not certain that they can do this long term. And also, we find in many cases, because of the shortage of staff, that they're not feeling supported in many cases because there's not enough people around to be able to mentor and support them. And so some of the early research that was done a number of years ago was telling us that new graduates were staying in the profession five to seven years. That was a few years ago now. And I fear that that's even worse. But what's surprising to me in, in talking to the deans in the nursing programs is that their seats are oversubscribed. So people want to come into nursing. And we are, they say they are turning away people who are more than qualified in order to take the programs because they don't have enough seats. Right. The government says they're going to increase funding for a, num- for a number of seats. Well, that's all well and fine, but you can't, you know, nurses, uh, registered nurses is a bachelor, bachelor, bachelor degree. It's four years. So, you know, this is, you know, for the, you know, in the future. And, but we could, I believe we could still have far more seats than are available. So that's on the new nursing side. We also have an average age of a nurse between, right now, registered nurses between 48 and 49. So that's the average age. We have thousands of nurses who are eligible to retire. And when we surveyed them pre-COVID, uh, that age group, they said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to, I'm going to work beyond normal retirement age, say 55 for a few more years. Not really sure, but I'm still in it. Now with COVID, we're, we've been surveying and they're saying, you know what? I just don't know that I can do it anymore. I, you know, I'm not certain I'm going to work beyond my my retirement date. So that's very worrisome. And then we have the mid-career nurses who are maybe 10 or 15 years in are saying, you know, I don't know about another 10 years. Hmm. And so those are the group too that I'm worried about. That's why I think retention is so important and why we have to, do everything we can to support our current workforce or we're really going to be 
and have ourselves up backed up against the wall. You were saying, like in educational institutions, that their their courses are full, their programs are full. Uh, why are the colleges yeah. and universities not offering more programs? Because obviously, you know, the more people they get in programs they want, the more money they're going to make as well. So why would they not Absolutely. just expand their programs, the universities and colleges? Well, they tell me that it's funding, and it's funding, and, I, and I'm not an expert on how that yeah. actually yeah. happens in all the programs, but they say that they are maxed out with the funding available uh, for the seats. Uh, in the program, and the government, as I said, did has has offered uh, some additional funding to open up more seats, but in my opinion, it's not enough. Um, and also, the programs tell me that they, you know, they ha- also have to then have the, you know, professors and instructors, which in many cases are a bit short in supply. So it's a bit of a, a difficult situation for them, but. The ones I speak to are more than willing, but it, it is about funding for them, they tell me, and it is about ensuring that they have the, the professors and the instructors that they need. Um, but they, you know, they're willing. But I think it's, uh, will is great, uh, but yeah. being able to operationalize it is a different story. Will is great, but, you know, no one wants to pick up the broom and do any sweeping here. It seems that we're going around in circles and around in circles with the same discussion we've been having year for years. Yeah, you, you're right on that. Yeah. So let me ask you this, and, and, and let's end this, Vicky, on, on a positive note. What makes a great nurse, if, especially if there's someone out there? Because let's be honest, there are opportunities coming out of a COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and there will be some some turnover. So uh, this is a great opportunity for anyone who's interested uh, in healthcare. What what makes a great nurse? Oh boy, let me tell you. Uh, as uh, being a nurse for more than a couple of decades, I'll just leave it at that. It's the best job. I mean, I it's the most rewarding career when you can and care for people. Uh, not only to the best of your ability, but be able to actually provide the nursing care and the support to them and their families. It's very rewarding work, um, and it is certainly available work. I mean, we've got lots of vacancies out there. It is an opportunity. You're absolutely right. The skills you learn in nursing are transferable to your to your life beyond the workplace. And so it's exciting. It's It's great. The conditions for worker, for nurses right now is, is the cha- most challenging I've seen in my years at this with the shortage of staff, with the overcapacity of patients. But nurses tell me, you know, they, they, they love it when, you know, they love it, but it's so hard. Uh, but, you know, as you say, the opportunity is there, and I think just know that the position or the seats in the programs are oversubscribed means that there there are many young people, younger people that are really interested in in getting involved and taking this on and that gives me all kinds of hope. So I'm So what what advice here. would you give for a person out there, whatever whatever stage they're at in life, who are thinking about a career in nursing or healthcare, specifically nursing, what advice would you give those people? I would say to them is, you know, do it. You know, join us. Uh let's you know, come on board. Uh, working together with, 
other health professionals on the teams and work. It's as I said, it's a great opportunity, and I think the opportunity is now. So um, absolutely, you know, come join us. It is tough out there, but I believe, and I, you know, I've got to have the half the glass half full uh, view on this. That it will get better because I think the public will insist on it. I hope and put the pressure on the governments where it needs to be. And that healthcare priority is is so important to Ontarians, to Canadians, to have a good, solid, uh, reliable, consistent healthcare system. And uh, that's what we are all striving for. So is your message during uh, this election as simple as we need more nurses? We've got to do something to get more nurses on board. Um, we do need no- more nurses, but we have to have the funding and government policy to strengthen our health care system. And that the federal government, uh, yes, they aren't the ones who operationalize the health care system, but they are responsible <clears throat> excuse me, for the Canada Health Act, and they're responsible for the transfer payments that are needed for us to do that in our province. And they have a very active role to play. They can't just move this aside and say, well, it's not, nothing to do with us. It absolutely is. And healthcare is critically important for the success of our province, for the economy, for the country. Vicki McKenna has been with us, registered nurse, president of the Ontario Nurses Association, talking about focusing on health care uh, during this uh, next federal election. And Vicki, uh, please pass along to all those that you can in the Ontario Nurses Association. And in case anybody has not said it to you today, thank you for all you're doing. Well, thank you very much for, for telling the story and letting us pass on the message. I really do appreciate it. Vicki McKenna with us, RN and President of the Ontario Nurses Association. Thank you, Vicki. Be well. Let's bring in Dr. Catherine Smart, President of the Canadian Medical Association and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Uh, as I mentioned, a lot of focus on healthcare now after coming or trying to get out of a uh, year and a half global pandemic. Uh, certainly, all eyes are focused on healthcare, which is great uh, for this industry. We can finally get some attention to it. What is it that you're trying to get the federal leaders to recognize? Uh, what do you want them to bring forward? So we're really asking for a focus on four different things. One is to lead an effective COVID-19 response. You know, I, I think it's very clear that despite good vaccination rates, they're not high enough. And we're really needing that federal leadership around vaccine passports and vaccine certificates to get us through these next few months and to ensure safe and sustained return to in-school learning, which is a huge issue right now for parents across the country. So that that issue is still top of mind. And then, you know, as we move through the pandemic, which we're all hopeful for, we need to really think about how to build our health system for the future. We know that the funding from the federal health transfers has not been adequate for provinces to continue to fund burgeoning health care costs. So we need commitments there. We saw the crisis in long-term care at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's very clear that Canada needs a better plan to let older persons age with dignity. And we're asking for national standards and enhanced home and community care. Obviously, we need to really reconsider the decrease in funding that happened to public health prior to the pandemic and reinvest in public health so that we don't end up in these types of situations in the future where we have an emergency and there's a lot of uh, uncertainty about what to do. We're calling for commitments to climate change as well, recognizing that poses a huge risk to human health. 
And then we need to really start to refocus on investing in our health health workforce. Again, with the pandemic, we've been seeing really scary stories about nurses leaving the health workforce in droves across the country due to burnout. We've seen the Ontario Medical Association come out last week reporting 75% of physicians are experiencing burnout. So we need to better understand how to support our workforce uh, for sustainability. And part of that is investing in nationwide health force planning so that we have the data to know where do we need more health care providers? What type of providers do we need? How do we solve this issue of 5 million Canadians without access to primary care? And one of the ideas we have around that is increasing the ability of physicians to move between provinces and territories to practice. Hmm. Right now, when you're licensed, you're licensed in one jurisdiction. And we're asking for licensure to become national. So if I'm a doctor in the Yukon, I can provide medical care anywhere. And that's going to be a huge part of continuing to develop virtual care across this country and really leverage the people that we have already in healthcare. Um, and then underpinning all of these asks is the need to commit to reconciliation and anti-racism in the system. We are calling for the next federal government to implement all the calls of action in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and really start to get serious about addressing the structural inequities that marginalize Indigenous peoples and advance their inclusion in health care. Uh, how do you balance all of this with, uh, obviously the transfer payments come from the federal government to the provinces, but then every province has its own individual situation. Uh, passports are a great example. Um, you know, we're seeing a piecemeal effort across the country. Some are offering it, some are not offering it. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, we know passports are a federal issue. And if it's going to be a part of a passport per, for travel, per se, it would just be easier to have a federal system that blankets uh, you know, the whole country as opposed to all these different versions from each and every province. So how do you balance it being a uh, the, the money coming from the feds and transfer payments, but at the end of the day, it's the province that, that administers all of this? Should there be a different absolutely. setup there? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think it's an absolute challenge, right? You know, every system has pros and cons. The provinces, of course, know what's happening in their populations and are closer to the ground in terms of the issues for smaller numbers of people, which can have strengths. But, you know, as you've outlined, then when we're facing some of these issues collectively, like a global pandemic, that lack of federal leadership really starts to cause issues. We saw that in long-term care without the national standards. We're now seeing that with in terms of trying to efficiently run out an effective vaccine passport and vaccine certificate system. You know, do we really want everyone doing their own or would it make more sense to have leadership there so it's consistent, reliable Um, So I think what we really need to see is more cooperation between all levels of government and clear priorities around health to ensure that the provinces can deliver to their population. Uh, We were chatting earlier on with uh, the president of the Ontario Nurses Association and and having a very similar conversation. And one thing that was obvious is none of this is new doctor we've been talking about this stuff forever and now a global pandemic has obviously like i said exposed the exposed the weakest link in the chain how concerned are you that is we we get more vaccinated and covid19 is more in the past that this interest will wane or do you think there is now new momentum and focus on our healthcare system to finally uh, give it the attention it needs uh, as much as some of the other fashionable issues Well, I really hope that there is, because as you have said, you know, we have seen health punted from election to election with promises made, but not much being delivered. Anyone who works in the healthcare system knows that there are all sorts of challenges. 
And I think one of the biggest challenges being this this sort of illusion that we have a universal healthcare system, knowing that so many things that Canadians need to be healthy aren't funded. Things like pharmacare, access to counselors, mental health support, dietitians, rehab specialists. There's endless examples like this. What I'm grateful for is now, I think, because of the pandemic, which has been obviously a horrible thing, but it's really allowed Canadians to understand what we have been dealing with so long in healthcare. And I mm. think Canadians are now seeing the value of a healthcare system and the need to invest in it in the future and make it sustainable. Um, and the other thing I'm really glad that's come to light is just how challenging it is for the people that work in the healthcare system and the personal yeah. toll it takes on nurses and physicians, even before the pandemic, worse now. And I strongly believe to have a compassionate healthcare system that actually meets the needs of Canadians, you have to care for the people that work within it. And I think that's really coming to light for people also. So I'm hopeful that we don't lose focus on this. I, I think we know that this is a huge thing that Canadians care about. It's part of our national identity. And we have, I think, the, the possibility of really having an excellent system here, but it's going to take some commitment to change. Dr. Catherine Smart with us, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Of course, an election is looming, and the Canadian Medical Association would like the attention of the leaders as well, and uh, obviously in the forefront now as we deal with a global pandemic. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you for having me. You too. Uh, obviously, sad news yesterday when uh, we heard that uh, Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts had passed away at the age of 80. We remember only uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Stones announcing they were going to get back on their No Filter tour and uh, hit the United States uh, as soon as it was possible. And Charlie would not be a part of that tour. Steve Jordan going to fill in on drums for him uh, as he recovered from an illness. We certainly got the impression that everything was okay. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the sudden announcement uh, uh, yesterday. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Eric Alper, music and pop culture expert. He's with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm good. A little sad. Still sad. This sucks. Yeah. and, and It's awful. He he There's was such a he was such a gentleman, and we knew he was ill, and we knew that uh, he had he had uh, postponed his participation in this tour. But this seemed to be quite unexpected. Yeah, and and they still haven't announced from the Rolling Stones camp, and not like that they have to defend themselves or or reveal anything to anybody. But they haven't revealed why he was in the hospital in the first place and what sort of surgery he had. Um, you know, when you get to a level of the Rolling Stones, every word and every nuance and every little bit of gossip is worldwide headlines. Um, and maybe they just didn't want to lead anybody on. Um, but certainly Charlie Watts gave um, their blessing to go out on tour. Um, it is Charlie's band. It seems like Mick and Keith, as big as they are, um, you know, respect him enough to... Um, that I have a feeling that if Charlie said no, I don't think that you guys should go, and here's why. I, I think there's no there's no U.S. tour for No Filter coming in 2021 and 2022. Um, I think that they love and respect him that much. But he gave their blessing to go out on tour with Steve Jordan, who is a phenomenal drummer, um, probably the only person in the world that can fill anywhere close to the shoes of Charlie. Um, Steve has played on all three. Keith Richards' solo albums, along with Dirty Work by the Rolling Stones back in the early 90s. Um, and now I don't really know what happened. And it's not like 
that I, I have no inside knowledge, but I, I think when you lose a band member like this, um, and more importantly, a really good friend um, for the last 60, 65 years, uh, it's much bigger than doing a number of dates. Um, and they just might decide, perhaps, I know it's on the table because every band is going to deal with this, uh, it, whether or not if the Rolling Stones are actually going to continue with this tour date and moving forward. Uh, as you mentioned, No Filter and North American Tour. This is a long tour again. I mean, they do grueling uh, tours. They're in stadiums and such. Uh, do you think it will go the duration? Are there contractual dates they have to fulfill that were canceled? Uh, do you see them just saying to themselves, you know what, this ain't fun anymore? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, they are contractually obligated to do them. These were the makeup dates that they had to cancel originally due to COVID. Um, there is insurance on these dates, like all shows based on cancellations of weather or act of God or sickness or even death. Um, so financially, the Rolling Stones will not be taking a hit on this. And I don't think anybody would begrudge them um, if they did, in fact, cancel any of these shows. Again, like I, there's been no word on whether or not if they're going to cancel or still move ahead with it. As far as everybody knows, those shows are going to go on. But like in real life, if you've had somebody close to you pass away uh, from an illness, whether it's short or long, um you you start to age a little bit faster. You know what mm, I mean? Like, yeah, things are yeah. that much tougher to get up. Maybe the rehearsals don't seem to be as bouncy or excitable as they as they were in the past. Um, you know, Mick and Keith have long said, you know, no Charlie, no Stones. And they meant it more philosophically, like that uh, the Stones are a much different band and when Charlie is not there. Um, and maybe if Charlie Watts doesn't join the band, maybe these guys are still slogging it out, playing shows in London, England, without even, uh, you know, a hope of getting a record deal. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see. But I know that either either decision that they decide to make, um, I think that they'll just have the full support of the rock and rollers who do want to see them and who want them perhaps to pay tribute to Charlie Watts one more time. Mm. Uh, like the queen we just think that this band is going to live forever uh, <laughs> yeah. but how how did like i mean charlie watts was a 80 he's the oldest but they're all still in their late 70s how difficult is it for a 75 to 80 year old tour like this now i mean they're um, not 20 and 25 anymore yeah yeah I would probably venture to say that an, a healthy 75 year old mick jagger might be healthier than a 25-year-old <laughs> who was stoned and drunk off of his gore yeah. all the time. Um, same goes with Keith Richards. I think Keith Richards is getting stronger with every with yeah. every new news of COVID. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he, just, he, he should just be a Marvel superhero by now. Um, it, 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 you know, it's an interesting question because, you know, and you and I have talked about this in the past, these artists that are classic rockers that are over the age of, I'm going to say 65, 70, um, Kiss, Kansas, Styx, Steve Miller, they are probably at the, you know, they have the best doctors in the world. They have the best insurance. They have the best schedule 
to do this. They're not driving around in a van anymore. They're flying yeah. private as much as you possibly can. And that's a luxury that comes with slogging it out for 20 years without those luxuries even been available for you. So they have health gurus. They watch what they eat. Mick Jagger will still run 10 miles across the stage, even at his yeah. age. Um, so pretty healthy, I'm going to say much to the chagrin of Dr. Death just hovering over Keith Richards every every year. I think everybody's been predicting that for years. Uh, but you look at someone like a Tony Bennett. I mean, I think he just recently stepped back, and I think he was like yeah. in his 90s. Was he 95? 95. That, yeah. That's incredible when you think about it. Oh, if, if, look, look, man, if you and I are still doing this at 65 or yeah. 70, um, uh, amazing. You know, doing what you love. And that's the, that's the other thing is like, and, and I know I'm going to contradict myself a little bit by like, you know, it, you know, those rehearsals might be a little bit tougher to get through and stuff. And psychologically, I'm sure that they are. But this is what they do. Like, it's not like, you know, back in 1964, when somebody asked Ringo Starr what he was going to do next year when the band split up with the Beatles, he said, I'm going to open up a hat shop. Like, this is, <laughs> this is seemingly their lives, and it's not a job anymore. Although Charlie Watts always acted and looked like, you know, that this was his job so that two hours later he's going to go and go perform with a jazz band. Um, he, this is, you, you're going to take away a limb of one of them if they decide not to tour again because they're this is their this is what makes them happy they still they still get a kick out of it they still have burning issues from when they were 15 and that girl in grade seven ignored them that day you know what i mean <laughs> the, fire, the fires are still burning inside making keith um proving the naysayers wrong that they can't do this I, I think what still astounds me about this band, and I've been fortunate enough to see them a couple of times, not recently, though, is that they're still filling stadiums. Uh, you know, they're not playing in concert halls. They're filling stadiums, and they're still making music. Yeah. It takes them a little bit longer for the fires to rev up during a show, yep. maybe two or three or four songs, but that's what they're striving for. They're striving to turn that 600,000 you know, person field in Brazil into a sweaty 300 person capacity of the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto. Yeah. You know, that's what they want to do. And um, it, it, it's, it's remarkable that, that they're still out there and that they still love it. That's why they're the Stones. That's why they are the greatest rock and roll band in history. No slight to the Beatles, but when the Beatles split up in, in, you know, and were done in 1970, the Stones were going on all cylinders. Not only were they doing the greatest concerts that anybody has ever seen, but that run of albums of Let It Bleed and Beggar's Banquet and Exile on Main Street, Emotional Rescue, right up until Tattoo You, um, might be the greatest run besides the Beatles of the greatest rock and roll albums of all time. Go ahead and pick one. You know, you can make an argument for any of it. Um, I, I, I so remember Financial a... Was theirs. I remember a radio program director saying, you know, if you can stay in the business long enough, eventually you'll inherit it. It's pretty much the same for that band. I mean, <laughs> they've been managed yeah. to stay together. They managed to stay alive. They're the only ones left standing. Yeah, and everybody's got their own in entry to the band. There is some snot-nosed 14-year-old kid out there yeah. who is hearing about the death of Charlie Watts, who is going on Spotify, and who is going to put on the dirty 
dirty exile on Main Street and have their lives changed. For me, it was Tattoo You when I, in 1981. I was 11. And I heard Start Me Up, and I was like, hey, have you heard about this new band? To all my classmates and to other people who are listening, it might be Let It Bleed. So we all have, we all remember that first album or that first song that that really got us right here. And I don't know if you can really do that with the Beatles. You know, it's interesting you say that, because I remember as a teenager, I think I'm a bit older than you, I remember as a teenager, I'm at CFTR in Toronto, and yeah. the new single, Start Me Up, by the Rolling Stones came in, and I was sitting there with the evening jaw, I think it was Mike Cooper at the time, and they said, oh, you gotta listen to this, you gotta listen to this, you gotta listen to this, and they played Start Me Up, and they were all, it was like it was New Year's Eve, I mean, people were so excited to hear this song, it's incredible that the, that the impact that they have. Uh, do they make this a chart? Charlie Watts uh, memorial tour? Do they change it in any way from the No Filter tour? Does this does this take a different look? Obviously, Steve Jordan's going to be there instead of Charlie Watts. Does this take a different tone, feel? Uh, does it change as a result of this? I wouldn't be surprised if and and uh, you know these their last couple of albums are smoking amazing, like really really solid blues and rock i yeah. wouldn't be surprised if they just maybe eliminate one or two songs from the latest album and just start to add those songs that really show off steve jordan copying uh charlie watts um and maybe do do a lot <laughs> i was gonna say and just do maybe 25 hits but the fact is that they can do 75 hits and nobody yeah. will even go boo I remember when Clarence Clemens passed away, you yeah. know, still, even if you see a Springsteen show, you're going to see a video of Clarence there. I'm sure you're going to see the same thing with Charlie. It'll be interesting to see, as this is a long tour, if this does eventually become a farewell tour. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if around halfway they start to eliminate some shows off of the schedule um, just to make it a little bit easier on them. Um, they That would never happen if Charlie is around. Um, yeah, I think this, this, you know, you and I, you know, it seems like whenever we talk, it's always something bad or, or let's take a depressing look at the music industry. Um, it's an obituary. This, <laughs> that's what Alan, that's is, what Alan, that's what Alan Cross says whenever I call him. Who's died? It's an obituary yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. This one is different. And, and I think, you know, there's only a handful of people that I can think of. Paul McCartney will be one. Mick and Keith yeah. will be others. Ringo, you know, maybe not as close to this. Um, uh, this this one this one hurts because Charlie had nothing nothing bad about him. He yeah. was married to the same woman for fifty seven years. He, you know, didn't want the celebrity drug and alcohol lifestyle. I mean, you know, he started picking up a drug habit, you know, in the late nineties in the late seventies when everybody else had already pretty much cleaned up and got sober just because he was bored. <laughs> You know, so uh, he was a he was just a gentleman. There's nothing more that you can say. He was the engine that drove that that Rolling Stone train right up until the times when people thought that they shouldn't be performing again. They just proved them wrong time and time again. Charlie Watts passing away at the age of 80. The Stones roll on, it appears. Eric Elper with us, music and pop culture expert. He, uh, of course, uh, has watched the career like we all have had. And everyone, it seems, has another personal opinion of this band and, and of this drummer. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.